Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein with Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Back in the flesh. And freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. I am so excited to see you guys. You can literally, see, you can't see us, but we can see each other. If we sound a little different, it's because we're actually together. This is the first time we've done an in-person recording of the show since pre-lockdown we, we did one i think we had a birthday gathering and it was sort of outside and we did like a brief thing mm, but we didn't record the show we didn't record yeah no, we, we considered it but show. we never did because is... who can be bothered but but today we can we can this feels so different and great you're not just voices with a very slight lag over the phone that's true i mean and we are sarcastic in the flesh but the the sad thing is that the show will lose its unique cyberpunk aesthetic without our voices becoming <laughs> roboticized every minute or so yeah, dulcet tones back on the radio. We can bring it back, it's fine. So, so speaking of... Uh, actually, there's no, there's no real great segue to this. Um, we're obviously going to air on Wednesday night. By this time, there may have been... There's a major election of some sort today. Yeah, so if we're not commenting on some crazy thing that just happened, it's not because we don't care. We do care. We really, really care. No, I mean, it didn't happen in the movie world, so we yeah, don't so really actually, care. The, yeah, I re- I've revised my statement, we don't care. Uh, we only care about movies. Yes. <laughs> we are so specifically only about movies. That's right. I'm surprised no one's asked us to cover President Trump's filmography, which is not inextensive. I'm like two. Home, Home Alone. Zoolander. Little, Ra- Little Rascals. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, he was in episodes of uh, Sex and the City and uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anyway. He was in at the Ali G show, which is what's most important. Yeah, the ice cream glove. The ice cream glove. <laughs> Trump actually surprised me with a really sharp moment in that when Ali G asked him. <laughs> really sharp. Seriously. Yeah, yeah he, was, Trump, he was on the ball on this. Yeah, Trump asked him what is the most, sorry, Ali G asked Trump what is the most popular thing in the world. And Trump, after a moment's thought, said music. That's actually a really good answer, right? Yeah, everyone loves music to yeah. some extent. No one dislikes it. It is a form that everyone can appreciate and everyone can relate to intrinsically. Such what we're saying pop, is we all love answer. Trump. <laughs> no, what we're saying That's is... not what we're saying. No, Again, we want, to, we want to express that we do not know what has happened in the past 36 to 48 hours. Yep. Anything could have gone down. Yeah. Um, and speaking of just... While we're on the subject of Ellie Jean Sashmarin Cohen, as much as we did praise Borat last week, I've got to say, I actually think that this was better than the first one. I know some of the it's shock a better value film. is not there anymore and there's less originality but it is an overall better movie. The more I think about Borat 2, the more I like it. because That's because it's got less of Borat and more of the other stuff, which is new enough. Well, it's also because the previous film was just kind of an extension of the Ali G show Borat sketches. So at 90 minutes, it felt to me way too long. Whereas this film tries more to be a narrative and have characters and arcs. And to pull that off with a lot of um, non-actors unaware that they are playing a role in the narrative. Years off, 14 years after the first bar, right? Yeah. More of it than I realized when we did the review was actually filmed with unwilling participants or, or unknowing participants. To his enormous credit. But more than that, the narrative involving his daughter and going after Giuliani is so much more interesting than I want to meet and kidnap Pamela Anderson. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. ridiculous and absurd and misogynist. Compared to this, I know he satirized misogyny still to an extent it was unnecessary. The, the This film is quite an amazing accomplishment just in in such a small window of time stringing together a satisfying narrative out of these threads filmed on the fly um but yeah i would agree that it's a better film um that said i kind of wish that even though of course i agree with the political stance the film is taking we all hate trump 
I kind of wish that he would have been more willing to go after some of the craziness of the left wing as well and, you know, paint a picture of America's going mad. I, I don't, you know, everyone says uh, both sides. I'm not trying to say every people are as bad as each other or that um, activists are as bad as fascists. But after a while, it becomes a little grating to watch all these political movies that are built for a left-wing audience. It's a dimension of the film that's missing, but I think more significantly, it's of design because he wanted this to be the October Surprise. He wanted it to be much more consequential than I think it actually was. Yeah. And I know that's different from a narrative form. It doesn't... It, it actually set the sacrifice of the dramatic integrity of the film, but um, I understand why he did it. It was an activist move rather than a filmmaker move. To be honest, the worst part of the movie not really a spoiler, is when at the end it says, now vote. It's like, oh, I get it. So this whole thing was just political propaganda. You know, it doesn't stand on its own two feet. How, how is that now vote sign at the end of the movie going to date it in like three months' time? Uh, later this week. Or like later this m- week. Maybe right now, dear listener. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean it, it's, it's just, you know that whole Chris Evans thing and the, his supposed accidental uh, Instagram photo? It, it was accidental, I'm pretty sure. I don't think yeah. I meant to do it. But then he just used that as an opportunity to get people to vote. Be like, ah, cool, yeah. Yeah, plenty of plenty of Gander. Look at me doing this mm. now. Vote. That's a standard strategy. Um, speaking of, I've just noticed that is it is actually five thirty eight on the clock. <laughs> so we should get into talking a little bit about what we're doing this week. Five thirty eight is the Electoral College. It's a number you should all know right now. Ha 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 ha! What a joke. So uh, political humor. Get out and vote. If oh, of course, <laughs> it's too late now. Um, so we're going to be talking later in the program about Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, the new film that is in cinemas this week. We are also talking first about the passing of the first James Bond, 90s of age, Sean Connery. Before we do, we just want to talk a little bit about the news of the week and what is happening around the streaming and screening world. The Korean Film Festival Australia is on until later this week online, as is Treasurama as part of Monsterfest. The Polish Film Festival in Sydney is screening also until later this week. Um, Sydney Open Air Cinemas is also on until next weekend. The Geelong Pride Film Festival is screening online, as is the Environmental Film Festival Australia and the Human Rights and Arts Film Festival program Humankind. Um, the Antenna Documentary Film Festival has an event on tomorrow night. The Real Film Festival is coming up this weekend in Newcastle. Fantastic Film Festival Australia having an event. Um, the Moxie Film Festival, the first ever one, is coming out of Swinburne, a screening online. Um, Cinema Reborn is having their final retrospective screening at the Ritz this weekend. And furthermore, if you want, the British Film Festival starts next week. And at a separate note, last year, a fellow film colleague around Sydney, Alexei Taliopoulos, who is a after his grad, well known in the film scene, you can see him doing commenting a lot of films at the Golden Age Cinema. Had an amazing podcast, Finding Drago, which was a bit of a love letter to Rocky Four, but also for cinema more broadly. Finding Desperado, the first of a six part series, has just released. It is about tracking down, according to the Guinness World Book of Records, the youngest feature filmmaker who currently holds that record. But it's more just a general meditation and fun rumination on cinema and people who love movies so i've listened to the first episode i love it it's certainly on par with the excellent finding drago so something to check out before we talk about the film of the week we want to talk about news that broke late saturday night our time which is the passing of sean connery at the age of 90. we've seen him at wimbledon every year before then his last film was league of extraordinary gentlemen his big breakout role something we've discussed in, in episodes past was dr no in 62 he went on to make five more official james bond films as well as never seen ever again 
and many more, including The Rock, one of the formative films of my cinema experience, as was The Untouchables, um, a film I watched earlier this year that I still love very much, The Hunt for Red October, and many great underrated gems like Finding Forrester, The Hill, which absolutely deserves to be seen. And I think someone who, for so many, he's not just the defining James Bond, but a defining icon of cinema. He has, we talked about how Tom Cruise has a distinct charisma earlier this year, but Connery had one of his own and he had a beautiful accent, a beautiful voice, which we try to match uh, just off screen. We had a bit of fun with that, but no one can... Off screen, indeed. No one, indeed, that was naughty. He had, a, he had a beautiful voice and no one could match it, nor many, his talent in many of the films that he evinced. It's funny because as a kid, I was into the James Bond movies, but it took a while for me to connect that the guy in the old James Bond movies was the same as this old... Scottish accent guy that I saw in action movies. Shocking, Chris. Positively shocking. Yeah, but he managed, despite having built his career on the back of James Bond, to be an icon even outside of that. He's in so many major roles and has such a, a massive screen presence. I think he brought something really unique, both in terms of his looks. Um, you know, he was a very beautiful man. He had, as you say, he had a really interesting voice, um, but he brought a mix of roughness and sensitivity. I, like he, he had a very commanding presence and, you know, he's the kind of guy that you would not disobey one of his orders, right? Oh yeah, I was, I was uh, watching uh, the- He's firm, very firm. Very the scene by scene uh, interview with Mark Cousins and Sean Connery, which is one of the more in-depth interviews he gave and he mentioned uh, like how the persona was shaped initially. It was around the idea that you have to a look like someone who's walked right out of out of a mine, while at the same time present a persona that seems to have also read Proust. Mm. So you have to balance both ends of the spectrum. So look rough and tough, but when you start speaking, you have to be refined. Yeah. As someone who's read like classic literature, he pulled it he off, did, which he did, ended up reading as well. So apparently, for preparation for a lot of his roles, because he didn't have a film background, mm. he read a lot of classic literature and a lot of uh, Russian Chekhov and that yeah. kind of stuff. It's a very fine balance because you can present roughness and then end up going too far into kind of brutality. But yeah, it can he, become the Matt Damon, <laughs> <laughs> the Jason Bourne well, instead of James Bond. Well, you believed always that. Sean Connery could be a romantic lead. He never pushed the machismo too far. In Hitchcock's uh, Money, which is exactly one of my favorite I was thinking. Films. I was thinking of Money. Yeah. yeah, it's notable the choices he made very early in his career, upcoming out at this time. Money, Doctor No. Talking about this tangent, Sean Connery just did not come from a film background. He came from a very poor background. He came from a background which didn't beget you doing something casual like trying to be a theater or a movie star. He did start in theater. Um, I think part of it was the fact that, yes, he was a very attractive man. He had the grounding in the Mr. Universe competition and else. But you see, I, I think Bond was always best defined by that line in Casino Royale. You created the super to wear it with such disdain. He looked like someone who was suave and could belong in this world. But at the same time, at the moment's notice, you believe could defend himself and anyone, absolutely anyone else he was caused to. It's fascinating. I think he wouldn't have been cast by today's standards in James Bond. He was given a five-picture deal. It would have gone to Cary Grant, but they, he only wanted to do a two-picture deal. So they gave a chance 
this guy they thought could be good who had not proven himself in a major studio many major studio films and he did and under that pressure he excelled in Rush of Love Gold for You Only Live Twice and many more of the films he went on to do I mean Ian Fleming was initially quite against uh, his casting so was Saltzman and Broccoli yeah so it was it only was Terence Young who was backing it and it was Young and Broccoli's sorry Saltzman's wife it was like you have to let this yeah. guy do it and and Terence Young had a major role in grooming that persona the initial sort of suave look of Bond that we remember him by in terms of, you know, walking into in the famous Bond, James Bond line eventually that became a staple at that point. But yeah, I, I, I just love the swept back hair and I think his hairstyle in, in Dr. No was so... Uh, my dad was so impressed by great it. Great parting. <laughs> yeah, great parting and my dad was just... Uh, very much always try to copy his hairstyle when I remember, you know, when I was younger. It, it did set the trend. Yeah. What are some of our favorite Sean Connery roles? Look, I watched for the first time this year, The Great Train Robbery. Great movie, beautiful heist film. Never seen it. He's clearly thoroughly enjoying himself. I think he enjoyed himself what he could do, not just roles that were, there was a more moral ambiguity to. Um, certainly there's a reason I think he won for The Untouchables. Also one of his great performances, one of the ones I've seen the most of, but he liked being able to use and inflect his voice well naturally we could do in this role he's playing a character i think from more of a background beginning his own than he would have in james bond um we were talking off air about the hunt for october which i watched again this year it is the best jack ryan yeah i saw it again this year as well playing a lithuanian sea captain and who you have to believe that this character would do the things he would do in order to sell the film connery pulled that off not a lot of actors could. But also that commanding presence that he has is really well channeled there as, as a captain, you know, um, staging a um, defection. Yeah, you you, <laughs> you know could believe guys, it. You know the, and you know all these guys would follow him. That's, That's right. That you That's exactly it. Have that, you know, you could influence people who were that high up and were that, of that consequence. And even in Indiana Jones, I mean, Harrison Ford by that point was the bona fide actor and a brand for Indiana Jones to come in and still have an impact. You needed someone of Connery's stature and distinct presence for that franchise so so that you could believe that he's definitely could have an impact, have, have a presence, and yet kind of supersede Harrison Ford. You, can, you could believe that Connery, you need someone of his stature to come mm. and stamp his authority in that franchise where Harrison Ford was owning it pretty much. Which is I mean, his casting difficult. in Indiana Jones is a little smart. It's smart, and it's a little bit of an inside joke because <laughs> Spielberg was considered to direct a James Bond film at one point, and really, was, yeah, yeah, and decided to make his own version of James Bond. So it's Indiana Jones, it's globetrotting adventures, action, women, stunts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you, you needed someone who you believe a could be Indiana Jones' father but could be as, if not more, charismatic than Harrison Ford in the role he'd so well established after two years after being arguably at that point the biggest movie star in the world. Who else could pull that off but Sean Connery? Yeah. And then you see him also a bit tongue-in-cheek playing an ex-British Secret Service agent in The Rock, <laughs> a film I absolutely unironically adore. It's such a trash film. That, that, that's not to say you can't enjoy it, but like, oh man, it's a trash film. <laughs> the best. Losers try their best. I'm not going to say the rest of the line because it's public the, radio. The, you know? the... Talking of trash films, uh, I'm thinking of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, <laughs> which is, which oh, is, God. I think it, it gets a bad rap. Yeah, I recently rewatched it. It's fun, pulpy trash, you know, and a lot of people criticizing why Connery took the role and he basically went into voluntary retirement. 
after this film. I think he just thought, I'm getting too old for this after he got the terrible reviews. The thing is, it's not a bad film. I quite enjoy it now. (laughs) But the thing is, you referred earlier to his reading of classical literature. As bad as it is, his performance is committed and he clearly researched the Alan Quartermain role because that is what the character is like in King Solomon's Rhines. He is a bit of a rogue. He's the guy who took charge when no one else would. Um, He had some small roles in other great films, Murdering the Orient Express. He had a rough period in the 90s, the Just Cause... I don't like Entrapment. I know it's a bit of a classic movie. Oh my god! Movie, Entrapment good in made the movie. that's grow. another trash movie. Made it's... me grow up so quickly. Wow. Anyway, sorry. Okay. <laughs> this is yeah. public radio. Bye. Oh. <laughs> um, another, I, I referenced earlier, Man Entrapment. Entrapment. Oh, it's so right for parody. People are still parodying it. Like there was an ad a few years ago on TV that was an Entrapment parody. There, there is basically that that whole laser sequence scene is in every heist slash you know whether it is a Thomas Crown affair or basically you have, uh, what's that, oh my God, with Mad Boomer, that uh, TV show where he plays a, a thief, uh, which is a forger. I have no idea. Um, anyway, I'm forgetting yeah, it. But it's, 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 it's it was in Ocean's 12. It was, what about yeah. The Avengers, the, yeah, the, the 90s one? He was great. He was great at all these small bits too. Robert the Prince of Thieves, um, the, the better Avengers. Has anyone seen Robin and Marion? No. No. Should, with should. with Audrey Hepburn as Marion. Sounds good. Wow. Yeah, there, yeah. There's, there's plenty of Sean Connery films I have not caught yet and do mean to catch. Mm. Um, I haven't seen it, for, but um, I've heard yeah, it's one of his better roles. The other one in that the man movie who made became. was for, oh, very good, First Night. Mm. Um, again, not a great film. He was the best part of it. Um, the other I referenced earlier, um, The Hill. There, anyone who's seen Bridge on the River Kwai and knows about the importance of personal attrition and perseverance in a time of conflict. This is a film that deals with this in a much more low-key and environment, but is, I think, more reflective of what many soldiers will go through on a day-to-day basis. Not that this experience of the Bridge in the River Kwai aren't endemic for many, but this is something I think many more, both who have experienced um, either combat or have been in the armed service, or who can just relate to it as an analogy for how the hill is a, um, relevant to everyday life. And it's a marvellous film. It's probably the most underrated film, I would say. I have a small confession story. So James Bond franchise was one of the first... Highlander. Uh, oh, yeah. Films and a kind of franchise. One Lobos Ramirez. Yeah. So the James Bond films were one of the first kind of bonding sequences I had with my dad. Bonding. Like, yeah, bonding. <laughs> well, that was Freudian slip. But uh, like one of the first films we saw together, like, you know, because my dad was like, let me introduce you to cultured cinema. I'll make you a man. Oh, well, God, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that was it. That was exactly it. But uh, I used to mix up. So initially. Should have shown you entrapment. <laughs> that I prefer pres- to watch alone. My dad and I watched the Presidio <laughs> together. Not one of his best, but still he was fine. So uh, initially when I was younger, I used to confuse Sean Connery and Roger Moore. So I used to think Roger Moore was Sean Connery and Sean Connery was Roger Moore. This is a rarely autographed <laughs> picture of Sean Connery signed by Roger Moore. It's worth $150. I actually watched that episode this weekend, unrelated to the events this weekend. My God. Speaking of Roger Moore, though, it's interesting how he went for a completely different take. Because I think they just knew that you couldn't match what Sean Connery was doing. Uh, Lazenby tried, and Lazenby was good. He was good, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think Lazenby if persuaded, should have stayed on. I think he was a much better choice. I know he voluntarily chose not to, but I think given that they persuaded Craig, and Craig also kind of just has given up plenty of times and come back, I think if they really wanted to, they could have tried harder with Lazenby, because I really liked his take. I liked his take a lot too. Yeah. I liked it too. Um, I, we know I mentioned it earlier, but as much as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is his last film, Finding Forrester, it's beautiful, 
It's about love of literature as he clearly had throughout his life. Go watch it. Go check out his filmography. It is marvellous. Finding Forrester also spawned the eternal internet meme of You're the man now, dog! <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, um, Google that if you want to go down a, a rabbit hole of early 2000s internet nostalgia. It, it's fun because like, now that we're talking about it, it just feels like he's just been such an indelible part of our growing up. Like he, We've grown up with him. Yeah, he, ha- he absolutely has. It, f- even though he was very old, his death feels like such a shock because he is a genuine international icon, you know? Um, and I'm talking like, like a big uh, mark on I think everyone. I grew up in India, and there are not many cultural icons that can have that kind of global impact. But yeah, everyone in India knows who Sean Connery is. He's James Bond. Everyone, everyone knows who Sean Connery is. Yeah. Have a good reason. I'm good on you. We'll enjoy your rest of your films and enjoy Wimbledon from the sky. The next film, the first film we're talking about this week, which is in cinemas now, is Never Really, Sometimes Always. It is from director writer Eliza Hitman. It premiered at Sundance earlier this year. It stars Sydney Flanagan and Talia Ryder. And Theodore Pellerine, it is about a young woman in rural Pennsylvania who is 16 years of age who finds out that she is pregnant and decides to undertake an abortion and travels with her cousin, uh, played by Talia Ryder, Flanagan is the uh, main role play, Autumn, who travels to New York in order to undertake the procedure and the experience and difficulties, emotional and practical, she experiences throughout. I called this yesterday i really appreciated this film i really liked it i think there's a few films we saw grandma a few years back certainly uh, it's not well it's not comparable in any sense juno films that in it's comparable in some ways the most comparable film i think is uh four months three weeks and two days the palm door winner from 2007 um in that it's cinema verite handheld you know following the struggles um it's about female solidarity um versus a kind of manipulative predatory man um, and the struggle to get an abortion when the forces that be are uh, impeding it. Um, I thought that was a much stronger film, uh, but that's another story. Anyway. Yep. I appreciated, in a general sense, how the forces that be were very vague. We don't really define her relationship with the parents in this, though she is, as shown, extremely reticent to tell her parents. And that could be one or a combination of reasons because of her parents' beliefs or because um, of shame or if the other feelings she may feel in telling her parents that is kept quite general. I think there's a lot of things, particularly the final shot on this film, which you won't reveal, but that are deliberately open-ended so as to impress a lot on any number of audiences, not just on their preconceptions, but also on their moral and political views. I think this is a film that is broadly accessible. I don't think it's, well, I, I do think there are, I, I don't think this is a film that directs you to one political persuasion or another overwhelmingly uh yes you you're right i don't think it does that but at the same time the problem the film has is that it it surreptitiously is still very much wearing its politics on its sleeve the main problem with the film despite that is that it's not saying much i i have to disagree with what glenn said um i thought this film was overtly ridiculously obviously manipulatively political there are elements thereof i'm happy to get into those i think actually those are the failings of the film from a dramatic perspective yeah um, to me this is a movie about um look at how bad pennsylvanian republicans are they're not you know look at the the look at how bad um Republicans People, are in general. Yeah, I think it's extrapolating exactly. from Pennsylvania to like yeah, exactly the, the cross brushing in cross breeding. <laughs> it's like 
here in Pennsylvania, we've got abusive everyone. Everyone's abusive. Um, I'll get into that. We've got abusive everyone. Her family's abusive. The person she works for are abusive. And the people at um, who at medical uh, services refuse to give her an abortion and, and try and convince her that the baby is God's beautiful gift versus look at how great and nice and actually easy it is to get an abortion in New York. I think feel like this film is designed to work as an educational video um, in how it goes through all the details of how the, the what you have to do in order to get an abortion and in a lot of detail. Kind of felt um, like a PSA. Yeah, like a PSA. But I feel like the uh, people in rural Pennsylvania or wherever who she might reach out to this are unlikely to see this because it's an indie movie that's going to be watched by the city slickers who already agree with all the messages. Same kind of thing I was talking about with regard to Borat too. So in regard to that, um, not just politically, but in, in dramatically, my biggest problem with this movie is despite what other critics are saying, I found this to be not subtle at all. I found this to be extremely loud and actually, um, to the point that it's actually kind of dumb dramatically. Okay, I don't think this film portrays New York in any more of a glamorous light than it does Pennsylvania. Certainly, it portrays elements of Pennsylvania negatively, but I think overall, it views New York as a place that is, while yes, potentially in large respects of political persuasion, of impersonal and not friendly, especially to young women. Certainly some of those confronting sequences you've seen in this regard, and in fact, I say argue the most confronting sequences are as regards New York. I think when you look at the political aspects of it, um, there is a sequence where we see the main characters approaching a, a clinic, and there's a number of people protesting outside uh, the clinic. And uh, as we saw a similar scene with one character in Juno, certainly this has been a major issue in Australia where we have laws where you cannot do these sorts of protests in Australia now. I think it would be very easy for the filmmaker to portray these people in a more negative light. I think she, I think she treated it as um, this is the impression of simply what happens, this is how people are. I don't think the filmmaking in this regard uh, was overly prescriptive or judgmental. As regards um, how to accept this film as a uh, PSA, I think the the actors in going through um, the varied sequences of what is required, I think there were enigmatic, charismatic to see it through it. I think there were two sequences, uh, both which took place in clinics where one of which where the title comes from, which are very drawn out, where you just go question by question by question. I think this was more instructive than anything else. I think this lost dramatic and narrative function and momentum there. And I think that's where I do disagree with Chris. So I do uh, defer more to Chris's point. I think the film lost a lot of its weight there. And I think it could have uh, otherwise used the opportunity to just focus on the character's experiences rather than say, this is step by step how you would um, go about this sort of procedure. While the New York section of the film does have a predatory person and, you know, or someone portrayed as being predatory and the struggle to get through that, the character was offered everything she needed. The contrast between what the Pennsylvania, everyone's trying to convince her to keep the baby and telling her she can't have an abortion versus in New York, where um, the, the main character creates her own problems because she's offered a place to stay and um, help with money and refuses it. Basically, in, in, that's why I, I still see it on the kind of side of political propaganda. It's comparing and contrasting, like, look at how bad it is in Pennsylvania versus how good it is in New York and look at how nice the, the women are. For the record, the abortion star, um, clinic 
stuff in New York are the only nice characters outside the main characters in the film. And this gets to the kind of manipulation that actually made me, to be honest, hate this movie. Everyone's, it becomes misery porn. The, the sheer, I know some people have terrible lives, but at a, a certain point, it stops being interesting to just pedal out, you know, oh, here's her boss and he's a predatory male creep and here she meets a guy on the bus and he's a predatory male creep and look at her dad, he's a predatory male creep. Everyone, the, the movie, everyone's a predatory male creep, basically, or a woman who is um, a, a Bible thumper who getting in the way of this woman's right to decide what to do with her own body. Um, I hate the style of filmmaking that's just setting up oppositions so that you'll endear yourself to the main character more. Like by making, of course, you're going to empathize with the protagonist if everyone else is absolutely awful. Um <laughs> So we're going to get a little bit more into this film on the podcast. You subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Please let us know what you want us to fight about. Uh, next week, I guess we will note the events of this week. I'm sure there may well have been a result by now. But if they're not movie related, we don't really care. Yeah, we don't know. Um, as so, yeah, there's plenty of great stuff going on in the streaming and screening world. Certainly, more festivals and events are happening in person. Um, you can catch Sean Connery's filmography everywhere. It's well-deserved. I have my James Bond DVDs. I watched from Rush for Club on Saturday night. I plan to go through a few more, especially some of the ones. Um, yeah, because you seen. only live once, right? <laughs> I did actually watch that one earlier this year. Um, so I would. what would be next to me? I rewatched Finding Forrester, I think, and Zardos. I never saw Zardos. Oh, my God, Zardos. Yeah. The Mankini. The Mankini, the famous one. Yeah. And, <sighs> Don't, yeah, thank you for putting that image in my head. Well, that's great. So, yeah, um, stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Thank you to everyone who subscribed and supported during the Radiothon. We really do appreciate your help and support. And, yeah, um, reach out. Let us know what you want us to fight about. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. Stay safe, stay well, enjoy movies. Rest in peace, Sean Connery. Good night. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we are talking never, really, sometimes, always. Yeah, um, I was just saying before about how I found it to be kind of misery porn. Like, it becomes predictable and it becomes obvious and I stop empathizing in the way that the film is so transparently manipulating me to because it becomes obvious what's going on. You know, at a certain point, it, like, when she got on the bus, I was thinking, like, what male predator is she going to meet on the bus? Sure enough, she met, I, I, yeah. I was actually having that thought and then that happened. Like the the degree of suffering where like the only like positive influence in the film is the New York ab abortion clinic. Yeah. Uh, I actually, I think Chris and Glenn, both of you have very valid takes on the film. My issue with the film was it's dramatically just placid. I mean, uh, beyond a certain point in time, it's so repetitive in its cyclical narrative that oh, okay you know it this just becomes once you enter in abortion clinic in pennsylvania you just know what kind of people you look at how dumb meet. the abortion clinic stuff yeah, are in yeah, pennsylvania you know, look at how nice they meet. are in new york yeah so she, and these are exactly the people the abortion clinic in pennsylvania well, it's not an abortion no, clinic it's but abortion it's like clinic. planned parenthood she, or yeah. something and they try and tell her to keep the baby the other problem it's, i have it's probably not she, planned she, parenthood. She got, she it's got a doctor she got a sonogram she went to a doctor she went to a doctor and they said, you can't have an abortion, in as many words. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the basic problem that the film has is that the characters are so broad-brushed, 
is and the problem uh, beyond that it just becomes that here's this person it kind of feels like they're in the pokemon world they're meeting one pokemon after another and it's just like i wouldn't make that analogy i wouldn't either but big but it's just that they don't have any characteristics beyond you know here's my basic usps like you can list them in the four you know here's my main characteristics i'm a male so i'm, I'm a creep i'm oh, doing God. this that, so it's just like it's that cardboard cutouts that you meet along the way side that's, note that's point. i'm sick of so-called feminist films that are built around uh that bring this point out by making every single man a creep I, I complain about this every Sydney Film Festival in the last few years. It's just such an easy, obvious, and actually kind of dumb, predictable way of phrasing it. But anyway. All right. So several things to this. It is n not a problem for me. In fact, I think it is to the film's credit that they present circumstances, both uh, political and practical, in Pennsylvania and New York as they are. The film is to those who would agree who would very strongly empathize with not just the decision but the position of the main character um, would fairly be upset with the current state of play in Pennsylvania where there are more restrictive reproductive rights and laws than there are in a state like New York. Well, I don't have any objection to presenting um, the political reality or taking a strong political stance. It's more that I just didn't find the way the film was doing this to be dramatically interesting because I found it to be so kind of sledgehammer. All right, on that. So speaking to the nature of the characters and the characters to which we are presented, um, uh, it is not for me, not just simply not beyond the role of possibility, but not improbable, not in many cases highly probable, that two women who are 16 years of age who moreover are conventionally attractive would get the attention of a lot of people who are creeps. And yes, we see these people encounter any number of persons they could potentially reach out to help but we see them speculate and say no we don't want to do this it's fair enough they are being cautious so they do decide to reach out to the person who they meet initially who they decide they may be able to take a chance on this actually leads me to one of the best scenes in the film which takes place in a train station where the characters are oh, let's just say the two main characters are holding each other's hands it's a very emphatic sequence um i've traveled I, I, I'm not just I've certainly not a, certainly I'm not in the experience of any of the main characters, but I've done that bus trip from that part of Pennsylvania to New York, and I've spent time in these parts of the city, and it is alienating, and it is uh, confronting, it is dangerous, and it'll be more so to people in this particular position who, moreover, do not have the sort of resources that I had access to at the time that I went, and are vulnerable. And this is presents a, a overall a not unrealistic experience, which I believe many people would and have gone through. I think the response to the kind of things I'm saying write themselves. It's like, you're a man, you're in a position of privilege, you're saying this is unrealistic, that every person in the film is a predator, or da-da-da-da-da, or you don't know what women go through, or what the experiences are, blah, 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 blah. Fine, right? What I'm interested when it comes to being a film critic watching this film is what is dramatically interesting. And I agree. Yeah, when we've That's had the father being like almost cartoonishly abusive... Through implication, this is the kind of thing that the move that people call subtle. Okay, I need to take a side. Yeah, I'm sorry. I actually want to clarify my earlier point. I'm very sorry. I actually missed the first few minutes of the film, so okay. I believe there may be some context here, but some other comments. But also Chris's comment here, which I take, uh, which I can't re respond to directly, but I I take that there was a sequence I missed involving the family. Okay, um, the, we've got the father who's ridiculously creepy then we've got the person they work for who's ridiculously creepy and then they go on the bus it's kind of like 
I get that the film has a perspective, but when you're, you're working with such a condensed narrative and everyone they encounter is a creepy predatory man, I'm not exaggerating, everyone, it becomes like there's one thing to present the, the perspective of a woman who is taken advantage of being young and defenseless in the big scary city, and then there's like overlaboring the point and in the process, for me, becoming dramatically uninteresting. You know, it. I see. I see your point, Chris, and I think there's a distinction to be made. We're not suggesting that it's not likely that a character would only meet creeps in their kind of journey, and that this is not realistically possible. But from what we're trying to distinguish and say is that dramatically, it makes for boring viewing because if everyone is a basically cardboard cutout, but. I presentation would, of that kind of person then you can basically predict yeah. that the next person they're going to meet is also just that and they turn out to be exactly that exactly like and I, I said the, the point yeah. about on the bus it's like okay I guess she's about to meet a predatory man and then that happened and, and that happened. that's a bad and sign it's just like oh god the, not another one <laughs> yeah something that uh, Virat mentioned earlier about the characters being too flat I feel like the film's style works against it here I think they're going for um, a person that you can project onto um, in the main character, but they've bor- uh, the Hitman has borrowed the style of the Darden brothers, where it's really intense close-ups and intensely following a character around. The difference is that their style is built around films with really interesting, engaged, active protagonists. They merit this intense focus, whereas this character is very blank, I think, by design, and the intense focus on her after a while starts to just feel boring because there's not much to her. She doesn't really have any flaws until near the end of the film. Um, And even then, we don't really get much insight into her. Um, I found the actress quite compelling. I actually think the actress... She's very good. Don't get me wrong. I just felt the characterization is blank intentionally. I I, I think the actress who played her cousin was actually a lot better. Hmm. Um, I could have... I think they both would have been very suited to the main role. Certainly this more dramatic... Um, well, genetically interesting material in the main role. I think for me that it, I, I think from a purely narrative perspective, this film, yes, could have been more interesting if we were exposed to a wider myriad of characters, a la in that cowboy type situation where a yeah. character goes to New York and meets many more. But Shades, do, right? Like- but... But we're dealing with many a, a different narrative here, which is constrained. Um, she simply, for financial purposes, also emotional purposes, wants to get in and out of New York. And we see uh, this challenge where it's constantly delayed. So unlike um, the John Voight character, she's in a situation where she isn't actively trying to meet people. So it doesn't even get that. I understand that because it's intrinsic to the narrative. But more than that, for me, I think what makes the encounters not just realistic but compelling is that... All the men she meets in this, including other ones that she who's part of her life at the beginning, are people who are there involuntarily, and certainly any other she meets, um, she she they would just as well have gone on this to this place, um, looked to undertake the procedure, and go home. It's relevant to me that the people who are these bad influences and are these bad people. Um, aren't invited into their life as the John Boyd character might invite Sidoffs, the visitor upon her, which makes not just realistic to me that they would be these creeps, but dramatically and emotively compelling. I think it's a very distinct circumstance we've seen from a lot of other road trip movies, and therefore the particular circumstance. Um, 
is very engaging. It's also me. it's also her home environment, though. It's like she went on a road trip from a place where she is sexually assaulted every day by her boss and by her dad, by the looks of it, at, at least at some point. That there's heavily implied to be abuse coming from the dad, and I'd like to talk about that in a bit. Um, to a place where she also runs into other predatory males. It's like this can happen, but even with regards to the of realism, I'm not trying to say that this can never happen, but this would be a particularly bad few days, can, I think. Yeah, this can happen sometimes, almost. Uh, I wanted to make, it, a, make a play the, on the, the title, but the, I completely the, forgot the, 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 the sequence. can <laughs> depict unusual circumstances rather than an, an improbable circumstances. That's true. Wrong with that? That's true, but when it has such a political context and such a political message, to me it becomes a little obvious when it's given this this political framing. It's like, oh, I get it. It's a feminist pro-abortion film. And everything flows from there. Okay, uh, I, I don't necessarily pro, have a... Do you mean pro-choice? Pro-choice, sure. Okay, I don't necessarily... Pro the right to abortion. Yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily have a problem with the politics of the film, but I do have a problem with how politics is represented in the film. Yeah, that's my sense So, as well. So the problem is necessarily, it's reinforcing the stereotypes that... Uh, if you are somewhat of the left and, and liberal and left-leaning, you would have about areas which are conservative and red states. Mm -hmm. So it is basically, it is such a broad brush kind of representation of Pennsylvania versus what, New wait, York. Are you saying it's unusual that people who are left-wing background would find themselves in rural Pennsylvania? No, no, no. I'm just saying it is reinforcing your stereotypes of people like that would be, oh, would want you see these people from Pennsylvania. Uh, they, Of course, she's going to run into these many problems. Of course, they're going to be, you know, she's not going to get any support. It's well, such a, it's just I reinforcing need to, well, your yeah, yeah. stereotypes. My, my, of, my family are left-leaning Democrats who aren't from a low, high socioeconomic background and live in rural Pennsylvania. So this is this is, may not be their particular experience, but... Uh, they certainly live in those environments and communities. They, look, the, the way I, I kind of agree with Rhett because here's something you missed at the beginning of the film, which put me off offside right from the start. It opens with this talent, high school talent show <sighs> where she um, at the end of the sequence, we see um, a cover that she's playing of a 60s song, but it's got this really heavy, obvious um, I'm being abused kind of subtext, you know, about he's got this control over me and she's coming on stage as like the impassioned singer songwriter. But in the lead up to that, Everyone we see before that is doing a 1950s thing. It's like the doo-wop boys and Elvis impersonators and stuff like that. And right from the start, this put me offside because of how unrealistic it is. It's such a it's, dumb it's, shorthand for like, look at how backwards these people are. Yeah, these are. people are literally stuck in the 50s. Yeah, that's it, what it's trying to that's, say. That's how I took it. Yeah. It's, so, it's such an obvious shorthand that we use the 50s to represent conservatism, backwards, racism, homophobia, etc., whatever you name it. Um it's, it's reinforcing stereotypes which are at yeah. least 20 years old. But it's like, also just so unrealistic. Like, I think a, a high school talent show in a area, you know, of low socioeconomic status or whatever, you're not going to have a bunch of kids idolizing the 50s in 2020. You, I think it would be more like you'd see a bunch of wannabe pop stars and rappers. So immediately the movie put me into this place of, like, me urban writer, me, you know, me no country... Yeah. People, they dumb 1950s. Like, it was just so 
ridiculously strawmanish that exactly. I just thought this is not what people in rural Pennsylvania would do at the high school talent show. Like exactly. this is just portraying them in such an unfair, slanted way. It is, and the problem with that is it just kind of reconfirms your biases, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, the and the the contrast was so extreme between that they're, they're all doing the, this 1950s thing, and she's like she's the sensitive. I'm pouring my soul out with like contemporary singer-songwritery indie stuff sound. Because it's just like, oh, come on, like, don't treat me like an idiot. There are, I wish I had a comment on this section. I wish I'd seen it. It's exactly as I'm describing for the record. Everyone's doing 50s before they show her. I'm not exaggerating. Yes, that's, that's true. The other problem I have with it is, I mean, if you're even showing pro-life arguments, there have been updates since a very caricaturish way of people doing it, like, you know, shoving Bibles in people's faces. There are much more nuanced ways of doing it. Uh, and, you know, okay. if, you, if you want to do it, at least update your... All right. But I think this is how it's actually That's done in a lot of areas. Right, no. I'm going to... Yes, there are different ways that the pro-life movement approaches these issues. But I got to tell you, I lived in D.C. and I was there when okay. Congress shut down because of this issue. And I was there when they drove the massive semi-trailers full of pictures of aborted fetuses. Up. I, used to, I worked in the same building as the headquarters of Planned Parenthood. And I saw the protests and I saw the rhetoric. And this is not across the board, but it is par for the course among many people who are pro-life. I did not take issue with that to mention okay. the film at all. Fair enough. Before we wrap, because we're running out of time here, but um, there's just one more thing I want to mention because I hated it so much. It, I think <laughs> this is, for me, it was the worst scene of the year that I've the worst scene I've seen in any new film this year. It's the scene. Did you catch Glenn the, the scene with the dad and the dog? Um, oh, I, th- I okay. think. Oh, no, I, don't, okay. I don't believe I did. Okay, so it's the kind of thing that makes me question why everyone's calling this film subtle. With the characterization of um, the father here, I, I think people think the film is being subtle because it never explicitly says that he's abusing her. But before this scene with the dog came up, um, I thought, okay, it's so incredibly obvious that he's abusing her. Like they weren't being subtle, they weren't being subtle about it. Like he seems creepy when she is, is talking about pregnant. He's he's an asshole to her when after the talent show. When she's talking about pregnancy, he's making like, it's all in her head kind of stuff. Like it's obvious to any thinking audience member what's going on. And then there's a scene um, at at that point in my mind, there was no doubt he was abusing her. And then there's a scene where he's playing with the family dog that opens with the dog between his legs while he's he's patting it. And I thought, okay, is this some kind of like, you're my bitch blowjob imagery. But then as he's patting the dog, he starts like, he, he calls the dog a little slut. And the mom is like, no, you know, stop. And he's like, what? She likes it. It's just so loud. For a film that people are everywhere in all the reviews calling subtle, like that crossed the line into not, this is like, not a subtle film. Not subtle at all and really, really dumb. Like, there, how, ways to make it so, so, so incredibly obvious to everyone what's going on, even the dumbest person in the room, while getting kudos for being subtle. Yeah. Oh, I hated that. Yeah, all I would say, not having seen this scene, is that um, I'll take at face value this is how the scene played out. I think the filmmaking in that, at least the point I saw the film, I came in at a very early stage, dramatically improved. For it the did get better from. <laughs> I, for the reasons that I've outlined before. Yeah, it did get better than that. That was the most in your face thing in the film. So that is never really, sometimes, always. It is in cinemas now. Enjoy movies, enjoy tonight, and please let us know what you want us to fight about. And thank you again for those who subscribed and listened during the Radiothon. We really do appreciate it, as do all the folks at 2SCR. 
Thank you very much. We, yeah, we do appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. We love doing this. We love you guys. Thank you. Oh, and just a quick shout out. We are actually, because we sound so much better, we're recording this at the beautiful Commons in Chippendale. They're a lovely building. and Not far from 2SER. Yeah, nice co-working space. We're still not allowed into 2SER with three people in the studio, but we are allowed here. Yeah, uh, we are, we are you know, social distancing and all that, but yes, uh, we look forward to being back at 2SER when we can. And thank you for keeping everyone safe and for helping everyone out there who has spent a lot of time flattening the curve. Good night. Good night.